Thank you, team. It was wonderful. Good morning. Welcome. My name is Justin Sitzma, and uh, it is my honor to deliver our sermon this morning from Daniel chapter 6. And we are nearing the end of our series, which I hope has been insightful and challenging in various ways. We really do get this unique perspective, this snapshot of the life of God's people in this ancient world, in exile, and we get to consider how their story and our stories interact these thousands of years later. This is the second last week of our series, but it's the last week of our narrative portion of Daniel. As chapter 7 onward, it gets into some awesome and crazy apocalyptic type stuff that uh, Alex is going to be tackling next week, and uh, I bless him in that endeavor because I, do, I don't, I'm gl- let's just say I'm glad I'm teaching this Sunday and not next Sunday. Um, so today we get to go through a story that is beloved by children somehow. I don't know why. Like I told, I told my daughter, I was like, I'm preaching on Daniel and the lion's den. She's like, oh, that's awesome. Um, and I guess it's because it has animals that you see at a zoo. Um, it's, it's weird, some of the stories that our kids latch onto. Um, like the basic plot of this story, just to summarize even before we read it, is that men conspire to get Daniel killed for his devotion to God. God saves him. And then the men who conspire to, get, to kill Daniel are then killed themselves by being thrown to the ravenous lions. So, um, not a kid's story. (laughs) In fact, even the VeggieTales version, who's who's seen the Veggie? come on, lots of you, lots, okay, there's actually not as many as I thought, okay, but y'all know VeggieTales, you know, like, you know, classic 90s uh, Christian culture. Um, So, there's some disturbing things that unfold. So, Daniel is played by Larry the Cucumber, and is saved by the lions, as, you know, as the story goes in the Bible. But as the king pulls Larry out, he thanks the lions for providing him with pizza. Can someone tell me what goes over top of the crust but underneath the cheese on a typical pizza? Tomato sauce. Tomato sauce. And who is Larry's best friend? Truly, this is a betrayal of his best friend, Bob the Tomato. (laughs) Highly, highly disturbing. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. (laughs) So while this is not a children's story, it is a powerful picture of what faithfulness and hope in exile look like. So let's take a moment to pause and pray before we read. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. So Daniel chapter 6, we're going to read all of it in one big chunk. It's about 28 verses, so it's not short, but I think it's an engaging enough narrative that we can just read it all together. Don't read with me. That would be awkward for 28 verses. But um, So... It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made uh, accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, 
Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, unless, uh, da- this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should, be, should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to the god, uh, to any god or human, human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty... Issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be uh, repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no degree or edict that the king has issued can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Again, not a children's story. (laughs) Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth, 
May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever and his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. So Daniel, under the reign of of a new kingdom, continues to thrive and have favor to the point where they have considered giving him responsibilities that he would oversee the entire kingdom. Daniel is now in the latter years of his life and has developed practices and a way of life and a deep faith that has aided him in withstanding this decades-long exile. Three times per day, he would kneel and pray toward Jerusalem and give thanks to God. Now, this was actually quite a curious practice that Daniel was doing. It's not particularly seen done anywhere else in Scripture. It's not like, you know, in the the, uh, Muslim faith where they are encouraged to pray five times a day toward Mecca, and that's just kind of a standard. Um, There's no standard here. Daniel just did this. There's no prescriptive evidence anywhere in scripture about this practice. We see a few examples of things like kneeling, Solomon and Ezra, they kneel in prayer. And in 1 Kings 8, Solomon dedicates the temple and he envisions a time in the future where uh, they may be exiled or there may be trouble in the nation Israel. And his hope is that people will pray toward Israel and toward Jerusalem. The best we can say here is that Daniel developed this personal practice over a lifetime of faithfulness to God. It was a way for Daniel to reorient and realign himself both physically and spiritually multiple times per day before God. It was a way of reminding himself every day, morning, noon, and night of where his allegiance truly lied. But the administrators and the satraps of this new empire were, as per usual, they were out to get him. They did not like the attention and the respect that Daniel got, and so they devised a plan to be rid of him. Knowing his faithfulness and devotion in prayer, they caught him, and they knew that that would mean his demise. So Darius For some reason, perhaps ego, maybe just simply weak leadership, he says yes and just kind of signs off on this decree that they put forth. It did, in effect, actually like turn him into a sort of god. So it kind of makes sense that like, oh, well, you want to make me a god. This is this is pretty cool. I'm gonna yeah, I'll I'll sign off on that. That sounds great, you know. but what he doesn't realize that as the satraps catch him in, uh, catch Daniel in the act of prayer, he doesn't realize that this decree would get kind of turned on its head. He doesn't realize that the very thing that he, that he desired would hurt the person that he cared about deeply. He's gutted by the news that Daniel had disobeyed this decree and that there was nothing he could do to overturn it. And he hoped He says it out loud to him. I hope that the God whom you serve continually will will protect you. Darius takes no joy in this new decree. In fact, he goes home after Daniel is thrown in the den. He goes home and he spends the night alone, distraught and sleepless. He goes to see what has become of Daniel in the morning and is overjoyed to know that Daniel was rescued by the angel of the Lord. 
Daniel continues to prosper during this time of exile, and Darius calls for people, for the people all across the various nations that uh, the Persians oversaw that they were to worship this God as well. In a twist of fate, the conspirators and their families were thrown into the lion's den where the ravenous lions devoured them. Now, the practice of executing children's families for the mistakes of one um, was fairly common in the ancient world. And in some, still, in some cultures, especially honor and shame cultures, this is still practiced quite often, not to that extent. But it's this thing that we don't quite grasp in our Western individual, individualistic kind of world. But in Babylon and Media and Persia, this would have been a normal practice where the sin of one would result in the punishment of not just them, but their family. And you should also notice, for those that are kind of getting their hackles up when they hear something like that, that Daniel 6 is simply describing what took place um, without any moral commentary. They're just describing the events that occurred. It's up for us to sit back and be like, that isn't good. That isn't right. Um, Anyway, so if you've been listening to this series week by week, and even if you're even vaguely familiar with the stories throughout the book of Daniel, um, you'll notice that there are some similarities in this story compared with chapter three, which is uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. There's some callbacks, if you will. And there are some similarities. There were, you know, there's a law that was enacted that was in conflict with Daniel and his friends' worship of God and God alone, and they refuse to uh, give in to that law, and they are sent to be executed. God saves them. The king gives credit to their God, and Daniel and his friends continue to prosper in exile. That's the same story in essence. But there are some key differences that I hope you'll find interesting. The first being that as of this chapter, we have new leadership that just kind of comes out of, blue, out of the blue, a man, a man that is called Darius the Mede, Darius the Mede. Now, this is a little weird. Um, we don't actually know who Darius is. It's an odd thing. It's an odd anomaly in this, um, in this uh, book where we have lots of exterior knowledge about King Nebuchadnezzar, about Belshazzar, about Cyrus the Great. These, these figures are widely known. Um, in both scripture and ancient history. But we have no record that lines up with this timeline of a man, a man by the name of Darius the Mede. Now, if you're a history or a Bible nerd, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but I suggest looking up uh, Wendy Witter, that's W-I-D-D-E-R, Wendy Witter. She does an amazing job of just unpacking the whole book of Daniel, but especially kind of this part of it here. And she has a lecture series on YouTube, YouTube if you just look up uh, Wendy Witter Daniel. They're amazing if you're into that sort of thing, and I highly, highly recommend it. One thing that she points out in, chap- in uh, chapter 6, verse 28, the final, chap- final verse of the chapter, is that the Aramaic, the original language, could actually be translated, and this is interesting, um, that the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus. So many scholars from all sorts of different theological pedigree, from different ends of the spectrum, they all tend to agree that one of two things is happening here. Either Darius actually is King Cyrus, that it's some kind of amalgamation for some reason, or that Darius was uh, some sort of regent or viceroy. One of, one of those two possibilities is most likely. I bring that up not to cause confusion, but actually to honor the scriptures. That to admit that sometimes we encounter historical difficulties when we're reading, right? 
that this is an ancient text with ancient languages that are notoriously difficult to translate sometimes. And the deeper we go, the more that this is bound to happen sometimes. And we trust that God has preserved his word in form and meaning over the course of many, many thousands of years. And that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But sometimes, occasionally, there's challenges, and we have to figure out how to reconcile that with what we know of history and whatnot. And so I just bring that up just to honor the scriptures in many ways. Whether Darius is Cyrus or someone else, here we have another leader who has shown favor toward Daniel. It doesn't change the heart of the story. Or another character-defining, this is also another character-defining moment for Daniel. Another major difference between chapter 3 and chapter 6 is the nature of the decrees. So in chapter 3, they have this golden statue, and they're told, you must bow down and worship this golden statue. It's uh, a sin in which they are being asked to commit, and they refuse. Daniel wasn't being forced to pray to King Darius, though. It actually was more a a sin of omission that he was being asked to commit, that he wasn't allowed to pray to God. But if he was going to pray, he didn't have to pray at all. He could have just spent a month not praying to to God at all, and that would have been perfectly fine by by their value system. He just wasn't supposed to pray to God. Yet another difference is the character that we see of Darius and the character of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar was this imposing figure. He threatened to tear everyone to pieces the moment they, you know, turned on him in some way. He was often erratic and irrational. He was prone to strong displays of power. He would turn toward God and then he would just as quickly turn away from God. Darius, on the other hand, presents as compassionate, but a little bit weak. He seems unable to assert his power, and it renders his authority meaningless. In a cruel twist of fate, Darius becomes bound by his own decree, which he naively assumed that you know the satraps and the administrators, he thought that they were doing a good thing, that they were honoring me, and they're making me the, the real god of this nation, and this is a good thing. This is what, I, what is supposed to happen. He couldn't pass up that chance, but it came back to bite him. However, Darius's proclamation of God in the end, which we read, um, seems to go be a little bit more sincere and a little bit more in line with his character than maybe Nebuchadnezzar. Listen again to these words that we hear him say. It almost has the cadence of a psalm when you read it. For he is the living God. This is Darius. And he endures forever, for his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And we don't particularly have any evidence that King Darius truly turned his heart toward God. In this moment, he seems to, but their their polytheistic worldview certainly would have allowed for him to worship lots of different gods, and for him to speak of Yahweh this way. Um, But this did not preclude him from worshiping all these other gods that he was accustomed to. So anyway, this is a little bit of the backdrop, a little bit of the, the story. Now let's get into why does this matter? What's important for us to consider here? It's an awesome story. It's got wonderful character development and, and complements the rest of the book in some really significant and cool ways. And there's wisdom that we can glean from these pages. But why does it matter? 
Specifically, what I'd like us to look into this morning, two areas. Faithfulness in the moment, which we see, and faithfulness over a lifetime. I think we'll find meaning for all of us, no matter what age and stage we are in this morning, as we consider both of those, faithfulness in the moment and faithfulness over a lifetime. We'll start with the former. Daniel, we see here, is committed to moment by moment, day by day, faithfulness and trust in God. He was presented with the decree put forth by these other administrators, and he knew what it meant for him. He knew if he got caught, what was going to become of him. In that moment, he made a choice. Now, it's worth getting into a little bit of Daniel's world here. So Daniel had been faithfully praying daily like this in his home for we don't even know how long. And all of a sudden is now being told that this practice is illegal. He wasn't, you know, praying on some street corner to make a show. He wasn't some, he wasn't some obnoxious, you know, uh, person with a bullhorn downtown Toronto. He wasn't like a pastor or a politician gleefully disobeying COVID health and safety protocols to make some bigger point about whatever. He wasn't looking for civil disobedience, but he wasn't going to hide in his closet either. Homes in this part of the world were built with, um, and this might be an example, um, they, they, a lot of this area was destroyed, and so this is all slightly um, uncertain, but archaeologists believe that these homes were often built with very small and high windows, both to protect from the sun as well as protect, protection from robbers. So it's not as if Daniel were like out on his balcony, you know, kneeling before God and praying toward Jerusalem. The other administrators who were seeking to um, accuse Daniel, who conspired against him, deliberately invaded his privacy. They would have had to got, gotten into some high place or some spot where they could peer in at a high level and see that he was disobeying. Nonetheless, Daniel had choices to make here. He, might, he may likely have been fully aware that they would try to spy on him, and he chose to continue this practice. You know, we've had a lot of talk in this series about where this line is. When you talk about kind of, okay, you know, I know that we're supposed to be kind of in the world and not of the world. How do we draw that line between what is, you know, what is okay to prayerfully accept or become permissive of in our culture? Or on the other hand, where we kind of stick to our convictions, here, we see Daniel draw a line. He says, these prayer practices of mine are more important than obeying the king. He could have said, I'm just going to close my eyes in my bed. And he could pray that way. That would have been, under many circumstances, perfectly acceptable. There would have been nothing wrong with that. But he chose to be true to how he connected with God by physically orienting himself in prayer. And temporarily, at least, he paid the price for that decision. I have an old friend uh, from high school by the name of Jared Brock. Does anyone else know Jared? No? No? Okay, this is going to be fresh then. This is great. So um, him and his wife, Michelle, they lead an absolutely crazy life. They have traveled around the world making documentaries on everything from uh, human trafficking to uh, underage access to pornography. Jared is a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus. He's written a few books. One of them he wrote a few years ago called A Year of Living Prayerfully, where he traveled around the world, literally all around the world, 
to find out different prayer practices in, in both Christian faith, the Jewish faith, as well as some others as well. He got to have lunch and pray with Pope Francis uh, to visit Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall. And most wildly, he spent New Year's in North Korea, the most dangerous country in the world for Christians, 10 years plus and running. Every New Year's in North Korea, everyone must pray, and this is one of his pictures that he took, um, everyone must pray and pay uh, homage by bowing to the Kim dynasty, the, uh, the um, now deceased Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and then their current leader as well, Kim Jong-un. So Jared was faced with a choice in this moment. And this is like real life. This was like four, no, this was seven years ago. So this is like not ancient history. <laughs> he had a real life choice in this moment to go through the motions and bow, literally bow, and perhaps maybe pray as he did so. But he could not will himself to bow. In that moment, he took a massive risk. He prayed the Lord's prayer over the people and the nation in that moment. Imagine what it would be like to be in North Korea fearing literally for your life that you could be thrown into, a, into an internment camp of some kind and praying something to the effect of your kingdom come, your will be done in North, in North Korea as it is in heaven. Knowing that that prayer could literally lead to your demise. Jared thankfully lived to tell the tale Daniel also lived. Many others, however, have not. We have daily choices to make that reflect our faithfulness. By the grace of God, I hope and pray that we will not be put in that kind of position. But you never know. We might. <laughs> we have the choice to pray or not pray the choice to retreat and withdraw into sin and darkness or to bring our brokenness into the light. We have choices to follow the Holy Spirit's prompting to speak to someone, to give your money uh, to someone, to make that phone call or that text as the Spirit prompts you. We have the choice to buy into so many of the things that our culture um, holds dear and that represent the spirit of our age, things like individualism and consumerism and pride. These daily choices that we make are critical, but by the grace of God, we're not alone. We can't do this alone. We can't do it on our own power, but, by the, but rather by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and the community of God's people around us that help us in these decisions. I am so grateful when I get to talk about a difficult decision I'm thinking about making with friends around me, with people that love the Lord and that want my best and want God's best for me. That's a beautiful and good thing. But with these moments, before long, moments turn into days. Days turn into months, months into years, and eventually decades. And we ask the question about what faithfulness over the course of a lifetime looks like. Faithfulness in a moment, faithfulness in a lifetime. 
In this part of the story, Daniel is no longer the young adult he was back in the early portions of the book, where he's this, you know, him and his friends are this, these, you know, people that are new to this life of exile. In the, over the course of decades, he's seen rulers come and go, literally kingdoms rise and fall. While everything around him has changed over his lifetime, he has anchored himself in the living, unchanging God. In fact, I think we could argue that Daniel's choice to pray in that moment after hearing the decree was the culmination of years of big and small moments of faithfulness, yeah? Daniel set small practices for himself that changed his heart just, you know, 0.01% at a time. Little, little heart changes, little uh, realignments, little reorientations toward God. Choosing to make a daily practice of prayer, realigning to God. You know, I recall when I was in middle school and high school, we'd go to these big youth rallies. There's like thousands of other kids there. And sometimes the subject of like martyrdom came up. And back then, this was like kind of early 2000s, um, it was kind of on the heels of the Columbine shooting in, um, in Colorado at the high school there. And there was, this, there was stories that circulated around um, one or two young women who uh, were asked about their faith before they were killed, and they were lauded as martyrs. And to be sure, these young women were insanely brave and deserving of honor, but in retrospect, sometimes the way that these youth rallies went about kind of like prodding at that felt a bit icky. <laughs> the charismatic preacher would kind of yell at us and ask if we'd be willing to die for our faith, and thousands of us would stand on our feet and be like, yeah, we'll die for our faith, you know, like, which in retrospect is also a little creepy. Um, I think it's true. I feel fairly confident that I, given the moment and opportunity, that I would die for my faith. I know that. I believe that. The thing is, dying for your faith is hard. But the daily dying of oneself, those little daily denials and deaths, those are the ones that cultivate a lifetime of faithfulness. What do those practices look like for you? For me, and I know many at Courtright, um, Lectio 365 has been a wonderful resource. The, uh, the app that you can get on your phones that allows you to just receive from God through scripture and prayer. For others, it's the ancient practice of the daily office. There is also centering prayer. Centering prayer has been really vital for me over the past couple of years. It's been a really valuable way for me to connect with God and just sit and be before him. Bible reading plans, studies, worship music, staying connected to a church community, which I know for those of you that are watching online right now, that this feels probably harder than ever. And I just want to say that I would love to find ways to help you to continually connect. And I recognize that this has been such a challenging season for you all. Or maybe for others of you, it's taking time to journal and write out your prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude. These are personal practices, but they're also communal practices in their different ways. There are so many things that on a daily basis we can be anchored by and that can lead us to a lifetime 
of faithfulness. These practices are also the breeding ground that stirs us up to good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 reminds us that we are God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's this holy rhythm of retreating into God's presence and then going into our neighborhoods, our cities, and our nations to do acts of mercy and justice. What do those practices look like for you? They're going to look different for all of us. Maybe if you're feeling stagnant in your faith with some of these practices, maybe it's time to switch it up a little. Daniel chose to orient himself toward Jerusalem and pray to God three times a day on his knees. I would venture to guess that that practice took on a few different forms over the course of his life. That he didn't decide one day, I'm just going to do this three times a day every day. He found a rhythm that worked for him over time, and it became one that even in the moment of trial, he was unwilling to change. It was a lifeline and an anchor for him. You know, over so much of the pandemic, many of us have described this feeling of languishing and struggling to think beyond the tyranny of the urgence, and that at times it's been really hard for us to think about next month, let alone five, 10 years from now, 20 or 40 years from now. My prayer for us is that the Holy Spirit would help us become people that seek to not only live in this moment right here, right now, but a people that are thinking about how these little moments here and now are forming us closer into the image of Christ Jesus. What do I hope for when the day of my death draws near? Who do I want to be? You know, I'm 35 years old. I don't often think about my mortality in such ways, although over the course of this pandemic, there's been lots of moments for existential questioning and thoughts. But it has been really moving as I have seen a few from Courtright that have passed away over the past couple of years and to see the profound ways that their lives have bore witness to God and to see the fruits of a lifetime of faithfulness. And I see that and I think that's what I want. That's what I want. I want to be able to be like Paul at the end of his life, saying this to his protege, Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all of those who have longed for his appearing. As we close out this narrative portion of Daniel, we are reminded of Daniel's faithfulness and the hope that him and his friends carried amidst decades of exile. They longed for home. They longed to be home. And yet they remained 
and they gave this snapshot of faithful living in a foreign land. We have seen God's miraculous provision in the face of death, but there were still greater miracles to come. It is quite amazing that even after a stone was rolled in front of the den and a seal of the king was placed on that stone, God shut the mouth of the lions and saved Daniel's life. Even more amazing still is a stone rolled in front of a tomb, sealed by Pontius Pilate and containing the body of the recently crucified Jesus. A dead man thought by many that he would be the savior of the world. And then, on the third day, the the stone is rolled away, revealing the impossible but true resurrection of Jesus. Daniel points us to Jesus, to the ultimate hope as a people in exile. Jesus meets us in this exiled state and reminds us that as we trust in him, we find a new life. We find true life, and we find our true home, even in a foreign land. Thanks be to God.